podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Some of the topics are addiction, fear, faith, self-compassion, relationships, codependency, emotional intelligence, and more. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. This episode is about mystical activism, consciousness, healing, and divine reality. My guest is John Robinson. John C. Robinson is a clinical psychologist with a second doctorate in ministry. He is an ordained interfaith minister, the author of nine books, and numerous articles on the psychology, spirituality, and mysticism of the new aging. John Robinson is a frequent speaker at conscious aging conferences across the country. His new book, Mystical Activism, Transforming a World in Crisis, is available on Amazon. Robinson explains that the word mysticism simply refers to the first-hand experience of the divine. It is the moments when the mind becomes silent, perception heightens, and we experience the sacred presence that pervades creation. It is a breakthrough of the divine into personal awareness. Mystical consciousness arises from this awakened, thought-free, sacred awareness. Everything is perceived as sacred, including us. This awakening of perception leads naturally to mystical activism, for we act now from a conscious unity with creation and instinctively strive to protect her. In the process, we experience the kind of world we want to live in. This is mysticism in action, he says. To read John Robinson's full biography, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Here is the interview with John Robinson. In your own words, who is John Robinson? Who is John Robinson? John Robinson is somebody who grew up to be searching all the time for what this is all about. I thought I would find the answers in psychology, and I and I found a lot of answers over 30 years in practice, but, but it wasn't enough. And I always knew in my heart of hearts that the answers were mystical. I grew up without 
any kind of formal religion. My parents were into science and psychoanalysis and so forth. So they kind of disparaged the whole notion of, of the mystical or the divine. And I was not interested in theological religion because I knew that was just too many thoughts and belief systems. But I wanted to have firsthand direct experience of the ultimate nature of the universe. And, and that has been the singular uh, journey in revelation of the last 25, 30 years of my life and my writing. Everything I've done has been from this this sort of timeless and unchanging realization that this place is already divine. It's suffused with divinity. And, and all you have to do really is stop thinking, heighten awareness, and look at it intensely. And you begin to notice that it's not what you think, and, and you're, not, you're not what you think, and you're not where you think you are. This place is actually heaven on earth. It, it's Eden-esque more than just metaphorically, but literally. So that's been my journey. And as I've gotten older, I've come to understand that that this is a natural unfolding of aging, that the, you know people who are aging, if they pay attention, can begin to realize they are returning to the garden. And that's, that's what I wanted people to understand about aging. Mm, yes, I have a lot of questions for you about that too. Thank you, John. You mentioned belief and belief systems. How can we navigate the world without a belief? Is that possible? Well, you know, spirituality is about belief systems about the world, uh, particularly about the, the religious or, th or theological aspects of the world. But they are always a lens. They separate us from what is. There's, they are about what we think it is. So in a church of 300 people, we'll have one theological system, but 300 different interpretations of it. What I wanted to do is go beyond that because we are always getting stuck in the left hemisphere of the brain with your point of view and my point of view and who's right and blah, 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 on and on. And we never find it in the left hemisphere. It's really found in the right when we stop thinking and intensify awareness. And then we can have a direct experience of the nature of existence then it impresses itself upon you naturally. You don't have to figure it out. In fact, figuring it out is just another lens that gets in the way. It's like learning to swim. You can't learn to swim from a book or with, no matter how many theories you learned about swimming. It's only when you get in the water that you say, oh, my God, this is what it is. And that's what the mystics have been here to tell us. Who is and where is God? And how do you define God? Uh, well, uh, I don't see God in the anthropomorphic way that we've had for so many centuries. It's, that, that God is an invention of the human being based on our own projections of our own nature. So it's a man who's out there who has power and can make things happen and, and sometimes confuses us and sometimes punishes us and sometimes saves us. Those are all belief systems and those are not the, the, the ultimate nature of existence God, which is a word just so burdened with extra, you know, correlates of meaning and so forth. But ultimately, it's about presence. It's about experiencing the fact that the universe is conscious and alive and everywhere saturated with a presence that is us, too, because when we quiet the left brain, the boundaries of who we think we are go away because they're all based on thought. And then we realize that we're not only not, not only is consciousness in us. We are in consciousness, and it is the consciousness of the divine. So God is pure consciousness. I think that's the simplest and irreducible way to say it. And it's a consciousness that is full of beauty, love, you know, uh, awakenings, uh, acceptance, everything. Right. 
Um, do you think or believe or feel that we are thoughts? And if we are not, what are we? Consciousness? What is consciousness apart from thoughts? Well, no, thoughts arise in consciousness, but they are not consciousness. And thoughts can be helpful. Like we can build models of the perceivable world, and, you know, like science does, and they're useful in predicting and, and <clears throat> managing things. But it's, uh, we, are so, we are not that because our thoughts are also like the, t- dog wagging, the tail wagging the dog. They're very, in many ways, deceptive. I mean, we, whatever we think about ourselves and whatever we think about anything is not the same as that thing. And that's where we get d- divided. And the left brain takes over and then we lose track of, well, of the direct experience of the divine. Can you elaborate a bit more, John, about what would that be like, the experiencing the divine? Well, yeah, well, I've collected dozens and dozens of mystical, firsthand mystical experiences. And basically, they, they come in three flavors. They come in the big one, you know, the Satori, the, the kind that knock you off your feet with its profundity and, and hugeness. I mean, that's when you are swept into the light or literally experience everything around you as radiant and infusing it with, with God. Then there's a smaller mystical experiences that we have, like when our child is born or we're looking up at a giant redwood tree or the stars at night, you know, t- times when we just know that, or, or, at the, or at the moment of death, somebody else is passing. We just know that something very sacred is here and we can feel it firsthand. And the third kind is mystical consciousness where we learn how to stop thinking, heighten awareness, and tune in to consciousness in a way that reveals the same things as in the big mystical experiences, though not quite to the same degree. So what it's like is you, it's like right in this moment, I can, as I stop thinking and tune in, I notice the colors in the room and the, and the lines and if I bring and, and the beauty out the window and it makes me I mean, this is just evokes so much joy. And when I bring that consciousness into my own physical being, I, I feel like I burst with with love and joy. And I, I can, you know, I, I have to contain myself sometimes. I feel like dancing on tables. I mean, it, so it transforms your own perception of the world. So the world is not this ugly place that we define with thought. It turns out to be an incredibly precious, holy space all around us. So. What are thoughts exactly? Do you have any idea? Well, you, again, thought, if you want to figure out thoughts, I mean, they're, they're things that largely are organized in the left hemisphere. But the more we chase down thoughts, the more we're just going to have more thoughts. That's really kind of a dead end. If you want to know God, don't start thinking. I'm just kind of wondering how can we separate ourselves from thoughts? By not thinking. Yeah. And, and people say that's really, really hard. It can't be done. And I've tried meditating. And I can't stop my thinking. But here's the deal. When you shift into an intensely sensory perception of the world, meaning you, you, you're using all your senses in an intense way, thinking stops. I mean, this has been part of our, our evolution as as cavemen. If we heard a, we, we might be chatting around the fire, but if we hear a growl outside the cave, we don't keep talking. We stop. And thinking stops, and we tune into this inc- this intense awareness of what is. We still have that ability, we just don't ever use it very much. Thoughts are very useful, obviously, for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, how do we separate the necessary thoughts or the thoughts that are our own from just 
ideas that just come into our minds as suggestions, I don't know, out of the space, the environment we are in or from other people? Well, it depends, depends on what you want. If you want to think about like a, a scientific concept or a, a book, a literature or a history book or something, then those thoughts are, are thoughts based on from other people's writings and so forth. But those thoughts won't lead you to the other world, to the divine world. So you, the thing, what we need to do is learn how to stop thinking and then open our senses to what is. And then we discover that nothing is what we thought it was. And that's the magic. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, do, do you or anyone you know are able to live this way? I think it's an art that we're all learning little by little. Mindfulness, I think, is a lot about this kind of ability, except that the mostly the mindfulness people don't take the next step and say, oh, this consciousness I'm aware of is actually the divine consciousness. It doesn't belong to me. It, it's everywhere in the universe, because that sounds too theological to them. But that's actually the way it is. So I think all of us who practice mindful living, in other words, being present to each other without judgment and analysis and, you know, warring narratives, without any kind of thought between us, that's it. And the more we do it, the more we discover how truly beautiful we are. It makes a lot of sense, John. And uh, yeah, a Good. lot of sense. And I love that. Um, <laughs> what is mystical activism? So mystical activism, again, is based on this notion of the split brain. <clears throat> We've had this this uh, understanding of neuropsychology that the left hemisphere has to do with language and thinking and and analysis and and narratives and, and identity and time and story and all the stuff that we think is the mind and the right brain the right cerebral hemisphere is a non-language hemisphere which has to which uses non-language abilities like facial recognition and and. Uh, uh, orientation in space and so forth, but it also carries this non-thinking consciousness, and that consciousness is actually the same as mystical consciousness. So, if we want to look at the problems of the world, we have to understand that it's the left brain is causing all of them. What's wrong with you is an Im and immigrants or terrorists and this is that and you are who and blah blah blah, and it and it only creates upsets that stir up our emotions, make us mad at each other. We start wars that continues the cycle of violence. In the right hemisphere, that all goes away. I mean, because without thought, that's that world of man just dissolves. And instead of the lenses that we see through as being lenses of good and bad and dualistic perceptions, we now see things directly and we see the tree growing. And we come close to the tree and we touch it and we feel energy. And then something moves inside of me and I, and I feel this opening of love. And, and, I want, and I realize I'm standing in the garden. There's no, you don't do war from that kind of perception. You, 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 you feel a sense of that you don't exist as a separate entity, but you are the whole thing. And you love the whole thing. And it's, and it's, a, it's a way of being in the world that brings mysticism into activity. It's like mystical activism is, is uh, activity as a mystical experience. And that's different than what we normally do. So I would like to understand better the difference between spirituality or spiritual practices and mysticism. Sure. So spirituality, again, is, is um, about beliefs. I mean, we think it isn't, but it's about, you know, I have a life and I, all through my life I've had these experiences. I've learned things in church or temple or mosque and I've uh, had a few mystical experiences, these non 
ordinary kinds of transcendent experiences. And then I build this model for myself of why I'm here and what the ultimate meaning of life is. And, and then I keep seeking to revise and improve on that. That's the spiritual side of things. And like I said, every church of 300 has 300 different spiritualities going on, even though they only have one religion. Mysticism is free of all that. Mysticism is just why radical awe. It's radical amazement. It's like, oh my God, it's here. This is it. Not as a thought, but as a direct perception. Uh, let me direct perception, right? We are in, in times where the mind is so busy, right? Occupied with so much information and knowledge. How do we clean up? How do we start living a more mystical life, as you just described? It sounds really good, but how do we? By quieting the mind, by being here, now, without purpose, without thought, without goals, without identity, just being here. In, in the silence of, of, of being, there, there is a sense of everything is okay. I don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to fix anything, and my heart opens. So true, yeah. Um, right after, he's like, oh my God, I got to do this, 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 I got to rush. Exactly. The, the, the second single thought comes to mind, we are, we, are, we are entrapped again in the left hemisphere and imprisoned in the, you know, the whole labyrinth of thought. And the thing is, every time you're upset, you got to realize that you've been trapped again. That you got taken into some belief system that made you upset or sad or angry or something. And then you fight with it because you think the solution is changing the beliefs. And the solution is about waking up. Um, so do you think it's possible to actually live in this state of mind without encountering emotions, like struggling with certain emotions? Well, I think every emotion you struggle with is an opportunity to practice this kind of mindfulness, this kind of awakening. First of all, I mean, I think as a psychologist, there's a lot of work we have to do on ourselves from the, the psychological point of view, from early wounding, from conflicts between people, from our own reasons for being depressed. So that psychotherapy is very valuable for that. But there's a time we move beyond therapy. That's what I came to understand as a therapist was that therapy was missing the other half of the, of the whole equation, which is that when we can become quiet, there's a whole other world waiting for us. And, you know, Abraham Maslow, the father of, of um, humanistic psychology and the hierarchy of needs and peak experiences, all that stuff, late in his life, he had a, he had a major mystical experience. And, and he had, you know, he had a heart attack is what he had. I was thinking of somebody else who I'll tell you about. But anyway, so he has a heart attack. And, and then and, and his quiets down. He stops being such a workaholic that he had been. And he begins to discover that he is now living in a state of sustained transpersonal consciousness. He, he just he called it the plateau experience. And he and, he, he and many others like like um, uh, Bede Griffiths. And, and there are many well-known people who have come to appreciate that. This is coming as a universal state of consciousness as more and more people wake up because there's only one consciousness. And as we move into it, we affect others. And this this new kind of evolutionary consciousness is coming. And you and we will live in it. But it's a, it's a practice because every time something comes up where someone cuts you off on the road or says you're stupid or whatever, then you get caught up in thinking about that for yourself, getting upset and then getting the, the tail wags the dog again for a while. Right. So in a way, the way I understand 
uh, what you've been talking about so far is that um, we must stay in between, between love and hate, or just in between those extreme emotions? No, it's about, it's, it's really, tra- it's truly about transcending them. Mm, transcending. How is transcending, what, what is the difference between transcending, transforming, and changing? Uh, so I can be upset about something, and then when I remind myself that I, that I am a fiction in my own mind, that I don't exist, that this is all a story of John Robinson having this drama, I suddenly get that it's like a movie. I don't have to do this. You know, it's like the lights come on and I walk out the door and I say to myself, what was that all about? (laughs) That's transcendent. Leaving, realizing that I get caught up in these dramas that I project into the world and then get sucked into and then make my life miserable from. Transcending is separating from that and letting it go and returning to this thought, this pathless past, this thoughtless space that is the divine world. I like the way you are um, explaining that because a lot of people might think that transcending it's um, a destination, like enlightenment or something. And you're calling that a practice. It's not a, yes. a state of, of mind that we arrive at, and that's it. Nobody retires in enlightenment. <laughs> we keep working on ourselves, this life and the next life and the next life. You wrote something about to let life happen spontaneously, and I'm just wondering what that is exactly, to let life happen spontaneously from within. Well, I think that has to do with the flow, with, with the fact that in, in a wake in the present state, things are just going on. It's like you're a fish in the sea, and the tide goes in, and the tide goes out, and things swim around, but, but you don't have to do anything about that. You can just let it be. And I think from within, in some sense, means that we have to understand that we create this whole experience. This is an experience of the mind. A bird does not see the same thing we do. You know, the ant crossing my desk is not worried about my bills. I mean, they don't have the same. So the world we live in is profoundly a created world. To let it happen means to let go of that projecting and relax into the flow with no place to go and nothing to have to do. And from that, being is itself a state from which activity flows, but it doesn't come from the head. It comes from our state of being. And then, and then we do the things that are natural to, to life. We can trust life. Life is, is already okay. Right. Is there a a purpose, a grand purpose uh, for our lives? (laughs) Warren Earhart used to say that that you know the purpose was the booby prize of the of the mystic, of of the whole journey. I think to get caught up in ideas of like purpose are just to get caught up in another web of thought. I mean, you can go there, and lots of people have lots of points of view. Um, Thomas Aquinas, the very famous uh, Catholic theologian, had a had a who's wrote volume after volume after volume, very well respected man, had a mystical experience late in life, and he said. Everything I've written is nothing but straw, he said, nothing. And he stopped writing. And so, you know, we have to, do we want to figure out the ultimate purpose of life or do we want to be awake? Hmm. So to be awakened is the same as not having purpose. 
what do you do has a purpose, right? You're trying to get somewhere with work that you do (laughs) and the thoughts that you have. You know, I do what I do because I can't not do it. It's my nature, you know, like an apple tree has to produce apples and a, and a person who, who's a, uh, an ambulance driver loves that experience of the fast movement and the helping people. And you are what you have to be, but it's not that you have a purpose that you've conceived and you try to match that purpose. It's just that this is your nature, just like a plant and an animal and a, and a tree. So how do we teach young people, let's say even children, or teenagers, to have purpose, but at the same time to flow with life. I guess the question really is, what's the balance between the state of mind that is flowing and the the state of mind that needs to have a purpose and achieve goals? Well, you know, I think we have to understand the developmental stages of life. Adolescents really do need to feel a sense of being initiated into a purposeful uh, life where they matter, where, they, where their work is going to be important, where they're going to be recognized. And that's, that is such a hunger for adolescents that to take that away from them is, would really be inappropriate. Our work with adolescents is to, is to bless them, is to help them find their gifts and to, and to live their gifts. It's different at different stages of life. At midlife, you usually have sold out so far. You need to let go of what you think you're supposed to do so you can find something that the work of your soul or the work of your heart. So I I think flow comes naturally for adolescents, particularly when they're active, like playing basketball or running or or doing whatever their, their creative urge is. That's when they're in their own flow. And that's when they really need to be, you know, validated and 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 praised for for the gifts that they carry right it's it possible um for children or teenagers to become fully awakened you know i don't know the answer to that i mean there's always a few prodigies that seem like seem like they're there but i don't know i'm always really skeptical of 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 saints and gurus and people who look like they're there because there's often a, a shadow that's not quite there when you ask a large group of elders to write down what they most wished for in their final years, what three answers would you have shared with them if the question was directed to you? Well, I think one piece is life review to, to look back on their life and, and understand it from a higher transpersonal you know, perspective. So they can realize what they came here to do and, re- and thereby realize what may be unfinished in their life. Uh, it, that what you came here to do is, will, will shine through over and over again in your life history. Uh, the, the art is to make it conscious so that you can live it out. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, what would be another? And I have these three secrets of aging that I talk about. And, and one of them is to really give up this whole idea of who you are because it's, it's history. It's no longer what you really are. And in giving it up, you can begin to discover that consciousness has another gift for you and that, and that the true self is going to blossom again in a brand new and amazing way and to make space for that to happen. And then to, and that third thing, I think, is just to open your heart and love unconditionally any way you can. There are four questions um, you ask uh, to focus our aging. So 
that was on, on your blog. I'll be asking these four questions to you. The, the first one is, have you accomplished anything with your life and what? You know, it, uh, when I asked that question, of course, I asked the question of myself first. And I, and I, and I immediately separated out what I've done pro from a professional point of view with what I've done just spontaneously. And I think what I've accomplished most meaningfully is how much I've loved my children and my grandchildren and how important they are to me and my wife and my family and our, you know, our community of friends that if there's something I've really done, it, it lives in that realm. So that's, that I think would be my answer. I mean, I, I could talk about other things, but there's, they, they always take, I mean, what I'm going to miss the most are these people I love. Yeah. yeah, it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, the human connection is really powerful. Um, the second question you asked was, why do you think you're still here? Yeah, that, that really was a question meant to get people wondering. So many older people th think they're just waiting to die. And, and they say and they actually ask God, why am I still here? Why haven't you taken me? What? Why do I have to suffer like this? So I think it's a very important question in aging is, well, why are you still here? And and if I ask myself, why am I still here? <clears throat> I think it really is to open my heart in this mystical way, to to learn to love the world so profoundly and completely that, that you know, my love just pours through it, like it just ripples through it and, and embraces everything in a way that transforms it into beauty. Mm. That's funny that I know you asked these questions to older people, but I think we, all yeah. of us should be reflect Absolutely. and think about them because um, we could die at any moment. How do you prepare to die? I, th I think you need to, to, to do several things. I think we need to, I think I need to um, reflect on it. I mean, to, to really f accept that I am in a, in a final stage and it's okay And everybody that has ever lived has gone through this. So this is not an aberrant or, you know, un, unexpected thing. <clears throat> and I think so. that's one thing is to really embrace it. And, and perhaps even more than that, welcome it as perhaps the most profound um, spiritual transformation that you will have in this lifetime. This, this shedding of the skin of who you were and, and this awakening to the light. It's really clear to me that we're going to be moving from here into another dimension of consciousness. But I think at a, at a very practical level, for me, it's important that my children know what I need. And, and, and so that I can, I want to be able to do two things. I want to be able to bless them as I leave and, and be an example of what dying can be. But I also want them to understand that I'm human and I, and I need things. I, I'm going to need them to look after me. I'm going to need them to accept my vulnerabilities and, and my frailties and, you know, and, and, you know, be with me and, and let me go when the time comes. I mean, this is a natural human thing, but it's so full of you know, feelings at all parts that uh, I, I think it helps us to talk about it in advance. Dad, what do you want to do when you're dying? kind of thing. And I think that's the, um, when we need the most, like through, to be awakened, those moments of um, deep suffering and death. I mean, the end of the, of the body. 
the end of um, of whatever we think we are in this body. Yeah, and you know, we, at, at the end, we always go go back to our earliest wounds. I mean, we're like a big, you know, 50-story building, and as we decline, the, fall, the top levels fall off, and we come back to our original issues, and that's going to be basic trust, you know, and, and, and abandonment and love and all the core issues. Mm. Wow, true. I've seen some people who, when older people even, they're not dying yet, but they already like talking a lot about the past, about the, yeah, what they went through and the mothers and, and fathers. It's kind of interesting to listen to them. It doesn't go away. Yeah. And it's important It's because, you know, we project onto the unknown that which we have deep inside of ourselves. And if we're afraid that we're going to be abandoned by God, that's a projection of a feeling of being abandoned as a child. But it has to be identified and processed. Yeah, right. Um. So what kind of life do you believe exists after death? Um, from, from all the near-death experiences I've heard and, and read and, and from all the channelers that I've uh, listened to and believed, and, and which include people like Carl Jung. I mean, they're not, they're not goofballs. There really is. It goes on. I mean, that, that which you are <clears throat> rematerializes in the next world and you carry your problems there, even though you go through this. Um, profound movement into the light. Somehow, on the other side of the light, you you reconstellate yourself in in who you who you're familiar with being, and then then your work continues. I've had a number of really rich conversations with my with my father and mother, who are, of course both gone, and with my son who's gone, and with friends who are, and I really if you use Jung's dialogue technique, you can really invite these people in in such a way that you know that you're actually communicating with them and they appear in your dreams. And so it's clear to me that life is going to continue. And so, you know, we've got more stuff to do, but it's going to be a, a profound experience. And, you know, it's, it's actually very exciting. I'm wondering if that is just, um, it's, it's not just a, a wish because the mind's very powerful, as we know, will create anything. So perhaps we just, um, we wish to survive um, and to live on. It might be, I don't know. Uh, obviously, no one has the answer for that, I guess. But if you listen to the people who've had near-death experiences, you know, you, you cannot listen to them and say, oh, their mind just made that up. I know what delirium looks like. I know what organic brain damage looks like. I know what psychosis looks like as a psychologist. But these people are none of those things. These people have ha had a profound experience. It's fairly uniform across peoples and, and religions and eras and geographies. So you got to say, wow, you know, you can't convince these people that it was just, a, 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 you know, a hallucination is so much more than that. Yeah, that makes sense. But could just be another um, ability, another trait of the mind that we all share, right? We one day we will experience all of us. Yeah, but it's very mysterious, and we don't know exactly what that is. Um, what is love to you, John? When it, love is this inexhaustible energy of the universe, probably the primal energy of all that lives us, that flows through everything, that we dismiss and disconnect from when we have ideas of who we think, when we have identities, when we create stories, when we go about our world with having goals and objects and so forth. We, set, we Ironically, even if we think we're out to solve a problem, we're actually separating from love. And as all of it comes apart, we, we finally come back 
to where we started, which is it's all about love. And that's what we're made out of. And, and it's, what, it's like consciousness. It's one of those irreducible things that doesn't matter how you explain it. And you probably can't explain it in any re- reasonable way. And yes, the most important thing that is we we suffer from this idea that we have to explain things and then we just get tangled up in more thought. <laughs> true. So true. Well, it's good to talk, isn't it, about these things? I think that's <laughs> <laughs> that's why. <laughs> That's why I love this podcast, just talking to, um, yeah, different people and listening to them. And um, I mean, it's just wonderful. What are you learning? I mean, what is it, what is coming together for you as you hear all the different voices? Mm. I learn something from everyone, from their presence. But I keep learning over and over how important for mental health, spiritual health, It's human connection, having that purpose of doing something, feeling like you're doing something to help the other and you connect with them uh, throughout that journey. It's just the most amazing thing. And it seems like every time I talk to somebody different, this wisdom, just there's something in me that becomes stronger every time I talk to somebody new and they kind of uh, validate. Yeah, that's the word. They validate that wisdom. Validate. Yeah, I've always always I was always impressed with the, with the research that said that it didn't really matter what kind of therapy you did. It mattered what kind of person you were in, in the consultation room in the therapy hour. And as we, you know, so that, and I often felt that, you know, I, when I was with people, I didn't know what to do. And, and there was like five ways I could, I just was be present and let it unfold and let them find the way in, in the, in, in my holding them in psychologically. And, and that's the, that's the most important thing. I, I really agree with you. Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Okay. Um, so coming to our, our final, my final questions to you, they are still related to well-being, mental, spiritual health, but they are sure. all over the place. Um, it's just like questions that I'm curious about. The first one, what is another word for healing? I, I think it has to do with authenticity. You know, being, let it, experiencing what truly is you will heal, will heal you and move you to the next place. It's not being fixed. It's not being explained to. It's like an opportunity, even if you have to go to hell, hell and back in terms of the early wounding, it's that journey of being true to who you are that is the healing yeah wow you talked to me almost (laughs) because i thought my whole life except to myself and the day i accepted at least parts of myself Mm -hmm. that was like a celebration of life like oh my god yes it is i think especially for women i don't know it might be the same for men men struggle with it just as deeply but from a different angle you know are we ever good enough are we strong Mm -hmm. enough I really achieve enough. It's such foolishness. I know. What never fails to make you smile? Oh, my two-year-olds. <laughs> I can't imagine. In two to three or four years old, they just, I can get on the ground and play tracks and Legos and roll around. I, I just am unstoppable. Wow. Yeah, that makes sense. The innocence, just seeing life. Yeah through their lens. Describe life in one word. Bliss. The, the Hindus have this idea of, of, of 
uh, Ananda, which means existence, consciousness, bliss. In, in a unitary perspective, it's all one thing and it's all joy. And, and we shut it down with our lenses of belief. Yes, true. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself, others, and life? I, I, maybe it has to do with not mattering. That, that there's some level in which it's important to finally accept that you don't matter the way you think you wanted to or that you should or you hoped for because that's not what it's about. You know, we are the love that we've been seeking and, and to keep seeking it is to keep being without it. You know, and so that, you know, it's, it's being nothing is at first terrifying and then it's the greatest liberation. Yeah, true. So true. How do you define success? I think because I've wrestled with that, you know, with do my books make any difference? You know, has my work made any difference? And, and I, for me personally, it, it is about have I, have I said what I really deeply believe is true? And, and then whether or not people have taken it in in this lifetime or ever will or will may again or whatever, it doesn't. I had to be true to my calling. I had to be true to my soul. And that is, that is the truest success I can find, even if not that many people get it. Mm, yeah. What is to know oneself? I think just to experience what you are without judgment and preconceptions. I mean, we are a mystery made manifest. I mean, it's just so astounding. We, but we're always bringing up these comparisons. Well, I'm as good as this person, or shouldn't I be more like that? None of that. That's all of that same kind of self-devaluing. It's all comparisons are are forms of violence to ourselves. The thing is just to be, to to, to love being your own being, and that is. I mean, as, there's an old saying: "Who you are is God's gift to you, and what you do it is is your gift to God." So it's just like be what you are. That's the best thing you can do. Right, right, that's right. If you knew you had a few days to live, perhaps a month, would you change anything uh -huh. or do anything differently? Well, I would pull my family close to me, all of them. You know, I'd say, I need you guys up here. I need you with me. I want to I have time with each one of you to finish our story in this lifespan and, and to answer your questions and to reassure you that we'll be together again. Mm -hmm. I like that. Um, we should be doing anyway, right? Cause we don't know yeah, when we're going to die. <laughs> anyway, but the problem is our kids are so busy that as we were in, in the middle, as I was in the middle years that they, they don't quite get how important that is. It's only when you're about to leave that they suddenly get that this is the last chance. Yeah, and that's, I think that's the, this kind of wisdom or knowledge is that I'm trying to put out there, uh -huh. like seed in the minds of young people. Yes. You've got to think more about this. Good. Um, what are three things about life you know for sure? That I don't understand it and that's okay. <laughs> that it's all about love. And, and, and it's a great dance and I, and I'm not a good dancer, but it, that, that's, that's not what I, 
yeah, that's great, John. That was really good. <laughs> yeah, that was so good. Um, it has been fun and wonderful to talk to you. Really wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. To, this is most unusual interview, not, not excluding my, my, my throat breakdown. But I, this has been very pleasurable. Thank you. It's been fun. Thank you, Jen. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much again. My pleasure. Okay, bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about John Robinson, please visit his website, johnrobinson.org. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.